to the general discord, the Americans had consigned the League of Nations to irrelevance by refusing to join. They had shown scant regard for the sporadic conferences the League sponsored in the interwar period, aimed at repairing the world economy. Here at Bretton Woods, the task was not merely to design an entirely new set of monetary rules, but to show that for the first time, the US really would engage. Bretton Woods was to be the litmus test of whether 20th century internationalism could really work, clearing the path for the foundation of the United Nations the following year. That, at least, was the official ambition. But had you asked each delegation what they wanted out of the conference, you would have received a host of conflicting answers. For the US, this was the moment to demonstrate their rise to the status of the world's undisputed superpower. Britain's twin aims were to ensure the survival of as much of the empire as possible, while reducing their enormous wartime debts. The Mexicans were desperate that silver would play a part in the world's new economic system. No prizes for guessing their biggest precious metal export. The French wanted to be recognised as a sovereign economic state. And the Russians? Well, by the beginning of the final dinner, it looked as if they had turned up purely to sabotage the deal. For many, the best that could be hoped for from this banquet and closing plenary session was that somehow Henry Morgenthau, the US Treasury Secretary, could put a positive spin on the quandary. But some members of his delegation had privately conceded that failure to secure Russian involvement would represent a failure of the conference. Predictably, the row with the Soviets had centred on money, specifically how much the Russians would contribute to the new system of global economic management and the mood had soured in the past 24 hours, as it emerged that despite their politeness and genuine engagement in the sessions, the Russians were unwilling to budge. To add to the delegates' worries, meanwhile, even the Australians, who had seemed to be in favour of the agreement, hadn't been granted permission by Canberra to sign up, with only an hour to go until that final dinner. This was as much as most of the delegates knew as they filed into the dining room, Despite the hotel's best efforts to keep numbers manageable, hundreds had turned up that night. Bleary-eyed delegates, lobbyists, the local great and the good, journalists, and even the odd gatecrasher. The only people assured of a seat were the big names, the chairman of the delegations who had taken their places at the high table, at least all but one of them. Not every allied country was represented at Bretton Woods. President Franklin D. Roosevelt had insisted on involving the Big Four, the US, Britain, the Soviet Union, and China. But who should come along with them was up for debate. And as with so much else at Bretton Woods, even this had turned into a battle of influence between the British and the Americans. The British regarded the Latin Americans and the Chinese as entirely craven before the US. The Americans suspected the British had undue influence over the Greeks and Indians. In the end, the delegations were whittled down to 44, though that was still a few too many for the British, who considered the whole enterprise variously a monstrous monkey house, a Tower of Babel. And there were considerable language issues. Officially, at least, the conference language was English, but some of the delegates insisted on speaking in their mother tongue. The chairman of the French delegation, Pierre Mendes France, would happily converse with other delegates in fluent English when they bumped into each other in the corridor, but as soon as the microphones were switched on in the committee rooms, he flipped back into French.
Nonetheless, that was one step better than the Russian representative, Mikhail Stepanov, who couldn't speak a word of English. But what he and his team lacked in linguistic proficiency, they made up for in their superhuman consumption of alcohol. Almost every evening, they were to be found in the hotel's underground bar and nightclub, knocking back spirits and trying enthusiastically to communicate with their foreign counterparts, until that proved too much effort and they burst into Russian folk songs. The Soviet delegates' days were even more fraught. They and their interpreters spent half their time straining to understand the complex terms being hammered out in the plenary sessions, and the other half trying desperately to confer with Moscow. As one of the delegates later recalled, I could not help feeling that they were struggling between the firing squad on the one hand and the English language on the other. Grasp of the English language was less of a problem for...